Well, this morning we conclude our sermon series, which has been based on John Ortberg's book uh, called Soul Keeping. I know some of you have been uh, reading it as we've been going through uh, this sermon series week by week. We've looked at what the soul is and what the soul isn't. We've looked at how we need to guard and tend and keep our souls, how that can be accomplished. We've looked at how we need to practice gratitude and how we need to practice grace, not as means of earning God's approval or love, but in response to God's unconditional love and forgiveness that he offers us through Jesus. And this morning we're looking at how we grow our souls, how we can enable our souls to flourish, how we can enable our souls to become enlarged, how we can enable our souls to become more generous, how we can enable our souls to be all that God has intended for them to be. But I'm conscious as I've looked at the material this week and also at the passage that we are perhaps looking at the most profound way in which we can enable our souls to grow. This morning we are stepping, as it were, onto holy ground because one of the most profound ways in which God enables our souls to grow, one of the most deepest and one of the most paradoxical ways in which God enables our souls to grow is actually through suffering and it's through pain. It isn't a particular methodology, it isn't a particular course, it isn't a particular set of exercises. But time and time again, it's been the experience of God's people that God will use pain and suffering to grow them, to refine them, to change their character. Suffering has been in the news quite a bit this past couple of weeks. I don't know whether you saw the interview that Stephen Fry did with Irish TV. Um, he was interviewed by Gay Byrne, who's sort of Terry Wogan of Ireland. If you can have a <laughs> Terry Wogan of Ireland, but he is. Um, and at one stage, Gay Byrne um, asks Stephen Fry, as he does in all his interviews, if you were to die and stand before God, what would you say to God? Now, Stephen Fry is a very well-known atheist. He's been very... Uh, explicit and uh, voluble and loud in his atheism. And in reply to the question, what would I say to God, Stephen Fry does not mince his words. He said this, what would I say to God? Bone cancer in children. What's that all about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to, into which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That is what I should say. And it's quite striking as you uh, watch the interview with Stephen Fry, the amount of anger and pain and force with which he expresses those words. He's a remarkably gifted actor, comedian, and writer. I've read both his published biographies and admire much of Stephen Fry's work. His General Melchit in Blackadder is one of my favorite characters of all time, especially when he bleh, uh, like a sheep. But reading the biographies of Stephen Fry's life, it struck me time and time again that Stephen Fry does not seem to have arrived at the simple, 
cleaner and happier life that in the interview he says his atheism should produce. And I was struck this week with the contrast between Stephen Fry's words in that interview with the words of Kayla Muller. Kayla Muller was the 26-year-old American aid worker who had been held prisoner by Islamic State and sadly whose death was announced this week. Apparently, from a very early age, Kayla Muller knew what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to help other people. And this week, a letter was released that she wrote to her parents during captivity. And in the letter, she wrote words that stand in sharp contrast to Stephen Fry's. She said in the letter, I will always seek God. Some people find God in church, some people find God in nature, some people find God in love. I find God in suffering. I've known for some time what my life's work is, using my hands as tools to relieve suffering. And she concluded with this powerful conclusion. I find God in the suffering eyes reflected in mine. God, if this is how you are revealed to me, this is how I will forever seek you. God, if this is how you are revealed to me, this is how I will forever seek you. Amazing words for somebody as young as 26 to write. Profound words, deeply moving words, and words, if I'm honest, that I find far more inspiring than Stephen Fry's rant against a God that most Christians don't believe in either. If you want to read two really good responses uh, to Stephen Fry's interview, then read either Krish Kandia's blog or Ian Paul. Both of them on their blogs have very graciously and carefully and generously responded to Stephen Fry's interview, pointing out that what he says about God isn't actually the Christian God that Christianity believes in and proclaims. But there is this reality that at the heart of the Christian faith has been this most profound, beautiful paradox that faith is often tested and grown, survives and often prospers even through times of pain and even sometimes especially through suffering. And it's always been there throughout the history of the church. The New Testament itself was written to churches that were under threat of persecution and trouble. It's been said that those of us who live in the somewhat cosseted West can't really fully understand the New Testament or what it was trying to say. That really we need to be a Christian in parts of the Sudan or Ethiopia or perhaps in Indonesia or perhaps in parts of China. Countries, cultures, societies where to be a Christian is to be in a dangerous place. Where to even desire to want to come out like we are this morning and worship God publicly with other Christians means that you are putting your career at risk, you're putting your family in peril, and you're putting your life on the line. As we were praying this morning in the vestry, Hannah was just reminding us 
that what we come to do this morning is a privilege. And yet so often we take it for granted. We struggle to find a car parking place. Relieved that as yet, Edinburgh Council haven't started charging. We perhaps grumble at the person who's just taken the car parking space that we want and then bless them because we realize they're also coming to church as well. <laughs> we perhaps have a row with our spouse or with our children if we've got them. And we somehow moan as we come into church. We perhaps critique the first two or three worship songs. Church seems a bit cold or a bit empty this morning. Wonder how long Dave will go on for today. Buckle in, chaps, it's going to be a long ride. <laughs> and yet all around the world, there are millions of our brothers and sisters who would literally die to be where we are this morning if they could sit where we can sit, if they could sing what we can sing, if they could pray what we can pray out loud without fear of prosecution or persecution. The New Testament is written to churches enduring suffering and persecution and pain. It's something that we will, re we will revisit over the next seven weeks during Lent as we go through the seven churches, the letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. One of those churches is this church in Ephesus that Paul wrote this letter to, Ephesians chapter 5, that John read for us a moment ago. A place where the Apostle Paul had spent two and a half years planting this church, helping it to grow, nurturing it, correcting it, training it, teaching it, and a church to which he wrote this letter years later. A letter that divides into two halves. The first half, if you've got Ephesians open, the first half, the first three chapters, has been called a credenda. What Paul is telling these Ephesian Christians what they should believe. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are known as the agenda, how they should live in the light of what they believe. And the passage that we looked at, uh, that was read for us a few moments ago, is very similar to the one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Colossians chapter 3. It can, contains the same cycle of grace, if you remember that uh, from two weeks ago, and those four stages, um, acceptance or identity, stage two, sustenance, then significance, and then finally, achievement. Four stages, which some people not original to John Ortberg at all, uh, but people have written about it that it enables people to identify a model whereby souls can be grown and souls can be sustained and souls can become more like Jesus. And it begins in chapter 5 and verse 1 with identity or literally be like God, Paul writes. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the original, there were no chapter headings. We divided, or somebody has, into chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. But, of course, in the original Greek, 
there were no chapter headings. Chap what we call chapter four flows straight through into chapter five. So the end of what we call chapter four, forgive each other as God forgave you, leads straight into love each other as God has loved you. Paul encourages the Christians in Ephesus and Paul encourages the Christians in Edinburgh to follow God's example or literally be mimics, be imitators of God. Imitate God, become like God, seek to act like God. And remember again, that is the aim of spiritual disciplines or spiritual exercises. God's aim for us is to become like Jesus. That's his aim. That's, there's nothing short of God's aim for you and for me. It's not that we should be good people, not that we should be better people, not that we should be nice people. His aim, very simply for you and for me, is that we should become like Jesus. That when people look at you, when people look at me, they should see Christ-like qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus seen in you and seen in me. Be like God, Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Three times, Paul uses the word walk, verse 2, verse 8, and verse 15. The NIV often translated as live. I prefer walk. We're called to walk differently, live differently to the people around us. We're called to live like God, to live lives of love, walking in the way of love, living lives of total self-sacrifice. Lives that would have astounded the Greeks and the Ephesians that Paul was writing to. Lives that would have gone right against the culture of people who followed the gods of Pluto and Hades that Stephen Fry goes on to say in his interview that he would prefer to meet once he dies. Those gods could be bribed. Those gods could be manipulated to provide money or power, success or sexual fulfillment. It's striking that again and again in the Christian faith even, especially on Christian TV, you will hear people saying that you can manipulate God if you pray in the right way, if you give enough money, strangely always to that television channel, then God will give you the money, God will give you the relationship, God will give you the sexual fulfillment, God will give you the success in life that you deserve. But the Christian faith is the opposite of that. The Christian faith is the opposite of trying to manipulate God to do what you or I want to do. The Christian faith is about us doing what God wants us to do, not the other way around. The Christian faith proclaims a faith that requires, demands self-sacrifice, denial, humility, Things that nowadays, because of Christianity, we think of as virtues, but in the ancient world, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, those things were thought to be vices, weaknesses. Desire in that world was good. Fulfilling desire was even better. Jesus, by contrast, said that fulfillment came from denying those desires and living a life of self-sacrificial love, the love that he himself showed on the cross. 
And what does that life look like? Well, Paul goes on to describe it in verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 5. The different life that Jesus wants us to live is not just how we are to pray, where we worship, or who we are to pray to. The different life that we are to live flows from those things, but it shows itself in everyday life. It shows itself not by how we pray, or how often we read the Bible, or how often we come to church. It shows itself every day in how we handle ordinary, everyday things. Things like money, and sex, and power. It shows itself in the difference in our relationships, in marriage, in the workplace, or in parenting. That's what Paul will develop in chapter 5, verse 20, through to chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul takes three typical couplets or household codes relating to marriage, relating to parents and children, relating to bosses and workers, and he turns them on their heads. And he says things that were revolutionary for Romans and Greeks and even for Jews. But here he starts with more basic stuff. And here he starts with stuff that is still so relevant in the world of tax evasion and HSBC, and dare I say, even in the world of Fifty Shades of Grey. You knew I'd mentioned it at some point today. Verse 3. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's people. These are words for Lord Green and Christian Grey. And note that there is no league table of sin. Sexual sin is on the same ground as greed. Sometimes in the church we get ourselves a reputation for always talking about sex. Politicians don't seem to like it when the church talks about money. But greed is as much a sin as the wrong use of sex. When was the last time the church had facilitated conversations about greed? When was the last time, rather than asking somebody about their sex life, that as people came up for communion, we asked to see people's tax returns or expense claims or how much they'd spent on themselves as opposed to other people? But you see, in Paul's mind, in God's mind, Greed and the wrong use of sex are as bad as each other. And just in passing, if you were thinking of going to watch Fifty Shades of Grey, verse 4 is just for you. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I'll never forget my mother-in-law reading Fifty Shades of Grey on a plane where there were, I think, 60% of the people on the plane where we were going out on holiday who were reading Fifty Shades of Grey. And Kathy, my wife, turning to her mum and saying, Mum, why are you reading that? And she said, well, it's a book about old people. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. <coughs> Kathy said to her mum, have you read it? She said, no. She said, read. She read for about 30 pages and then looked horrified. And Kathy's mum grew up in the 60s. But even she was horrified by what she read. No obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. 
Paul later in chapter 5 and verse 20 is to paint a picture of relationships that are mutually submissive, not ones where one partner controls or manipulates the other for their sexual gratification. And why should Christians be different? Well, Paul says in verse 8 and 11, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And do you see what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say you were once in darkness, and now you are in the light. It's much clearer, it's much cleaner, it's much simpler than that. Paul says you were once darkness, and now you are light have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness be like god paul says be different to the people around you he said to the christians in ephesus and the christians in edinburgh and then finally he says verses 15 to 20 be careful and be thankful we looked last week at why we should practice gratitude why we should be thankful that's what paul finishes the passage that we read for us, uh, had read for us this morning in verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. One of the things that should characterize Christians is that we should be thankful people, people of gratitude, people of grace, yes, but also people of gratitude. But Paul also warns them, verse 15, to be very careful how you live. Be very careful how you live. Why? Because the days are evil, he says. So make the most of every opportunity. Paul knows, writing as he is probably from his prison cell in Rome, that suffering is about to come to this church in Ephesus. Indeed, suffering is about to come to every single Christian in the Roman Empire. The Emperor Nero is about to begin his persecution of the early church, looking for a scapegoat that he can blame, he will pick upon the Christians. Persecution and suffering and pain that we read about in history books and seems just unthinkable. Where Christians would be strung up in the trees of Nero's palace gardens, doused with the equivalent of petrol, and then set alight as human torches, just so the emperor could go walking in his garden at night time. Unimaginable things that were about to happen to the Christians. And Paul therefore says, be careful how you live. Why? Because the days are evil, and make the most of every opportunity. How will the church make the most of every opportunity? How will the church distinguish itself? By a display of power? By how it prays? By how it worships? No, by how it responds to suffering. In his chapter, in the book Soul Keeping, John Ortberg reminds us that we do not speak about a dark night of the body. We do not speak about a dark night of the will. We do not speak about a dark night, even of the mind, although depression often feels that way. But the phrase that has rung down the centuries for the last 400 years is the dark night of the soul. 
It's the soul that is afflicted by dark nights. Yes, the mind can go through depression, but it's the soul that has to endure dark nights. Times of pain, times of trouble, perhaps, which God doesn't send, but which he allows, and in a profound paradox, often seems to use to refine our character and shape our souls. The phrase, dark night of the soul, comes from the the spiritual classic written by St. John of the Cross. He was a Carmelite monk from the 16th century who wrote that spiritual classic. And in his book, he describes his own experience. He says this, God's love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of the dark night. And he writes about his own experience. Maybe you can think back to a time like it. Maybe you remember the time when you became a Christian. For me, it was 37 years ago. I remember, age 17, becoming a Christian. And for the next four, five, six years, being a Christian was easy. Being a Christian was exactly as the people who often preach on television channels these days about the Christian faith proclaim it. My prayers seemingly were always answered. Reading the Bible was a doddle. Being a Christian, doing the right thing for the most part, was comparatively easy. God seemed always close. God seemed always near. Going to church, even in Hull, was quite enjoyable. Worship songs were great. And then I started to experience God distancing himself. My prayers seemed harder work. Reading the Bible seemed more of a challenge. Going to church seemed more of a chore. Listening to a sermon where once it had been a delight, and there once was a delight, time, delightful time when I enjoyed listening to sermons, just like you get to enjoy this morning, that became really hard work. I still went to church. I still read the Bible. I still prayed. I had to. I worked for a Christian organization with students. I was paid to pray. I was paid to read the Bible. I was paid to speak, to tell other people about Jesus. But it had become really hard work. It went on for about a month. And eventually I asked a friend if he'd ever experienced this thing that I was experiencing? Was I unusual? Was I odd in this particular way? And I remember going for a walk in a park with him, and we walked for two hours. And I thought of every single sin that I could have committed that meant that God had distanced himself from me, that God had withdrawn himself from me. And we talked through every single sin that I thought I could have committed. My friend came up with more sins that he thought I could have committed. Loads more sins that he thought I could have committed. 
But after two hours of talking, we both concluded that I probably hadn't done most of them. And then I'll never forget him just turning and looking at me and, and just saying, well, Dave, I think you're just going through what's called the dark night of the soul. And I said, what's that? He said, it's a time that will come to most Christians. It's a time when God withdraws his presence from you. God is still there, but he seems not to be there. He's still close, but he seems not to be close. Prayer seems harder. Reading the Bible seems more difficult. Doing the right thing is more of a challenge. God is testing you. God is allowing you to grow up. In his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross uses the illusion of God being like a parent. And like any good parent, there comes that time when they start to have to withdraw to enable the toddler to learn to walk, to enable the teenager to learn their own lessons, to enable the student to pay their own bills. The parent begins to withdraw. They're always there, just an email or a phone call or a text or a bank transfer away. But for the child to grow up, there has to be withdrawal. There has to be detachment. There has to be separation. If the toddler is not allowed to fall over, they'll never learn to walk. If the teenager isn't allowed freedom to make mistakes, they'll never learn. God does that with his children. He withdraws his presence. And we experience what St. John of the Cross entitled the dark night of the soul. Where prayer is harder. Where trust is more difficult. Where faith needs to be exercised. Where hope is in danger of being extinguished. And often these times will come through times of pain or suffering. I remember talking to a very close friend who went through this dark night of the soul for 12 years. She still prayed. She still went to church. She still served in her local church. She still worked for the Christian organization that she worked for. But for 12 years, God withdrew his presence. And then one day, one morning, as she was praying, as she was reading the Bible, the light switch was turned back on. And for some reason, at that moment, God came near again in a way that she could sense. The same happened to me after about four or five weeks. He knew I couldn't cope with 12 years. I could just about cope with five or six weeks. And then one day, the light switch was turned on. And again, prayer became more of a natural thing. Reading the Bible became more of a natural thing. But there have been different times during the 37 years that I've been a Christian when I've gone through a dark night of the soul. It may be that there's someone, maybe a number of you this morning, and that is where you're at. 
And my simple word to you this morning is don't give up. Don't give up. Because what you're going through is perfectly normal. And what you're going through, far from it being an expression of the lack of God's love, is actually a demonstration that God really does love you. Because he's trusting you. He's growing you. He's shaping you. He's refining you. He wants to see how much of your faith is genuine and real. Not in a way to catch you out, but to see whether you are toddling or walking or whether you can run. Others of you are going through really difficult times at the moment because of suffering, because of pain. Maybe it's something in your own life. Maybe it's something that's happening to somebody that you know and love. Somebody in your family, maybe a friend of yours. The challenge for you is whether you will allow this time to be used by God to shape your character. Corrie Ten Boom, uh, an amazing woman who was uh, imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp, who lived through horrendous things, she just simply said, you either get better or you get bitter. You either get better or you get bitter. John Ortberg wrote his book, Soul Keeping, and dedicated it to the person who is his spiritual mentor, an amazing guy called Dallas Willard. Um, Ortberg actually calls his books Dallas Willard for Dummies, uh, because some of Willard's writings can be fairly dense and hard to um, understand. But Ortberg says that he was struck again and again that whenever somebody told Dallas Willard, who himself was to die painfully from cancer just a couple of years ago, Dallas Willard would always reply with these words. When told that somebody was facing pain or suffering, Dallas Willard would reply with this simple challenge. This will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. This will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. And some of you this morning need to hear that. Some of you are going through stuff. Some other people know about it. Maybe you're going through stuff that no one else knows about. And this is your test. This is the test of your joyful confidence in God. How are you responding? How would you respond to a time of testing, a time of pain, a time of suffering, a time of trouble? Would you give up, be angry, be like Stephen Fry and say, well, this, this proves that God doesn't exist? Or would you be like Kayla Muller and say, I see my suffering reflected in the eyes of the people that I see around me. I find God through this suffering. I find God shaping my character, deepening my trust in him through this time of pain and difficulty. This is the test of my joyful confidence in God. None of us knows how any of us would respond at that moment. 
when we're given a doctor's diagnosis, when we're given bad news over the phone, when someone sends us an email, when we get a letter, when someone tells us something face to face. None of us knows how we'll respond. But for each of us, it will be that test of our joyful confidence in God. Let's pray together.